one. Well, uh, it's good to finally uh, talk to you again, Andrea. Hopefully, uh, everything kind of finds you well here. My pleasure. How have you uh, been kind of, I know you've been busy lately, just checking on your social media and stuff and traveling with work, but it looks like kind of COVID doesn't really, the bad guys are always kind of working, so you seem like you must not have a day off. Yeah, no, actually not. We are, you know, COVID is actually making the work of uh, um, high-level traffickers, which are usually our targets, uh, easier. Uh, and they told us actually that, you know, we are in constant contact with them. Our um, our uh, undercover teams of investigators, uh, they met these people so many times in the past that they are able to remain in contact also during this time where you cannot really travel. And they were explaining to us that uh, the traffickers that um, because of COVID, there is much less attention to other kind of problems, even uh, uh, you know, customs and police at airports and ports are is, are understaffed. There is less personnel. Uh, yes, they cannot use the mules like right. before, like you know, with a simple trolley, but they can still send a lot of stuff uh, uh, through containers and you know, shipping companies. And again, we are talking about uh, illegal logging, illegal seafood, uh, rhino horn, ivory, pangolins, jaguar parts. You name it. Now, if this happen, were to happen again, like a shutdown or something like this magnitude, is there anything you could do differently if this were to happen again? Or is this something where if it happens, you just got to have the best, you just got to be ready for it? Yeah, no, we have to be, you know, it's it, one of those, you know, it's it, they're called black swans, you know, one of, one of those events that you can't really, uh, you know, uh, fully uh, forecast and, and you, you have to, you know, we, we are... We are okay because you know, first of all, as a company, as an organization, we uh, we went already virtual two years ago, so we don't have an office. So for us, working like this is absolutely normal. We are all scattered around the world, so this is our normal way of working. Um, in some countries, we cannot uh, travel, yes, but in some others, yes. For example, we are quite active in Mexico at the moment because we can go to Mexico. Right. Uh, we have other projects like Wide Leaks, you know, the whistleblowing initiative. It doesn't require any travel. It's about uh, um, allowing people to submit confidential information about environmental crime safely and securely and, anon and anonymously. So that is going on. Uh, we are working on our next documentary. So we have a lot of work to do uh, even during COVID. What's kind of fascinating, kind of when you just mentioned it, but as a human race, we're all affected by this, but the animals obviously aren't physically affected by the COVID itself. So it's fascinating that they are still being poached and whatever's happened to them while the humans, the good and bad guys, are both affected by this kind of global issue. It's very fascinating. Yeah, but, it's, you know, it's, it's at the end of the day, it's crime. Right. And and animals, animals or animals' parts or, or, or illegal timber or seafood – uh, are just commodities, are products, and they uh, th there are now uh, there are now several sophisticated trafficking networks and transnational organized crime around the world that are making millions of dollars from these products, and so they're not stopping because of COVID. Uh, actually, you know, like they are not stopping trafficking drugs, they are not stopping trafficking weapons, and they are not stop uh, they are not stopping trafficking human beings. So right. it's money for them. And in fact, uh, some of our 
main targets, uh, we have on our radar at least four or five of them right now. They are at the same time doing wildlife trafficking, human smuggling, and money laundering at the same time. You know, it's it's they're very well equipped to, you know, the bad guys are usually very well equipped to go through difficult times and still making money. Right. What was the kind of the catalyst that helped you kind of start with Wild Leaks and then kind of go into Earth Inc. International? Was there kind of like a, a catalyst where it's like, I need to help these animals? And kind of what was that? Yes. I mean, I am. I, 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 you know, I had, I mean, you call it circle of life. My circle was quite complicated and long. So I, I started many years ago with the first master degree in natural sciences. I was, you know, I was, you know, working in conservation with Italian foundation forever. Then I went into business and uh, I launched one of the very first e-commerce companies in Italy back in 98, you know, the prehistory of shopping online. From this technology, I went to security-related technologies. And then for, to make a long story short, for over 15 years, I work uh, in between providers of technologies and services for anti-terrorism and investigation, intelligence, and to fight organized crime and buyers, usually governments or large corporations. I also did anti-piracy. But then 10 years ago, I was in Kenya uh, for work during uh, the, you know, the, in, right in the middle of the elephant poaching crisis when we were losing 35, 40,000 elephants per year for, for the ivory. And I saw with my eyes how nobody was using professional intelligence to fight that problem and many others, uh, many other environmental crimes. Right. Well, we were do putting a lot of money and efforts to into anti-poaching activities, which are very important activities, but they do not address the problem. They just buy time. They keep the animals alive. They protect the animals. Very, very important, but they do not address the problem. Or other kind of activities like awareness campaigns, advocacy campaigns, working with celebs and billboards, also very important, but very long-term. Right. It was actually putting the nose right in the middle where the real enablers and drivers operate, the big kingpins, uh, like you do with other global threats. You know, if you talk, if you talk about terrorism or organized crime or narco-trafficking, the intelligence is actually at the heart of the strategy to fight back. You cannot dream to fight narco-trafficking of terrorists without intelligence. And yet, with environmental crime, which is the, lar the fourth largest criminal enterprise in the world, nobody is using and was using professional intelligence because it's, it's difficult to pull it off, I understand. But without intelligence, without taking the time and using the right people to really understand how the supply chains work, who are the main players, who are the main drivers, who are the real investors, uh, there's no hope to you know to fight back effectively. So this is this was the trigger to to I dropped my you know I stopped my doing what I was doing, dropped my clients, and I thought maybe I can build uh, what one day will be the first intelligence agency for the planet uh, using real intelligence. Right. Was there kind of a fear on your part, like a trepidation of man, I've I've thrown away a great career. Oh yes, but, but here I am. I, but you kind of found your purpose, I guess, which is very—it's awesome that you were kind of like spearhead for this. Yes, yes. I mean, in my pre my previous career, I I was making lots of money, probably four or five times what I'm making right now. I had vacation weekends, right? And, but I was miserable. I was really unhappy. It was I I felt that was not the reason why I was here. 
And so I, I was kind of easy to drop everything because I have this, you know, fire burning in me. Right. Uh, but at the same time, it was not easy because, you know, we, I started from scratch with zero money. I had to find the first uh, donors. Um, and, and also I had to pitch a very difficult and complicated you know, value proposition, I want to use intelligence to fight environmental crime. I assure you, now is a little bit more in fashion, but I assure you when I started to pitch it uh, eight, seven, eight years ago, they were looking at me like this guy is freaking crazy. What do you mean you want to use the former CIA officers to fight environmental crime? And I was trying to explain, guys, you are blind. You work too low. You were missing completely the top levels of environmental crime. They're laughing at you. You're a Boy Scout. But it, it's not an easy pitch, for, you know, for donors. It's not an easy pitch to media. It's absolutely not an easy pitch to big NGOs that cannot do what I'm doing because, you know, the minute they will start investigating and collecting information, they will be kicked right. out in every single country they work with. So it was not easy to, to and it's still not easy, actually. <laughs> I, I know we had talked before um with some of the celebrities, when you have like these galas, or, like these fundraising events, they're very specific towards, oh, I'm going to give $100,000 to the Bengal tiger or yeah, the spotted owl, wherever the animal is. But it's, for you, you got to be like, hey, these are all being affected. Why can't we just do a central fund that you know people like yourself and people you work with are going to protect all the animals? So that must be kind of a tough hurdle too, right? But you can't deny yeah. money. No, exactly. Because right. it's you know the, the whole environmental protection sector is still heavily emotionally driven. Right. And uh, and I understand the reason. Of course, we're talking about living creature, we're talking about the planet. Of course, it's emotional. But when you're too emotional, you ended up using money not always in you know for the right purpose in the right direction. So to give you an example, it's very, very easy to raise money, even millions of dollars to, I don't know, take care of baby elephants, orphans. Right. Fantastic, important. But it's way more difficult to raise money to try to, to stop making less orphans, you know, to go after the guys who kill the elephants right. and sell the ivory and all the trafficking. Because at the end of the, you know, behind the, an orf, a baby elephants, there is a trafficking network. There is transnational crime. So, if I if I throw a gala and and I ask money just for rescuing baby elephants, I will raise millions of dollars. Right. If I do the same and asking money to go after the kingpins, it's a it's a tough sale. It's a tough pitch. Right. They, they simply don't will not feel, I don't know, emotionally enough. Even though it's serving the same purpose. Exactly, yeah. Going after the kingpins, you're actually saving the... Right, it's... Only a few, only, I mean, fewer people will understand, oh, yes, wait a minute. We need to produce less baby elephants, orphans. So we need to go after the big guys, the enablers, the drivers of the whole thing. But there are less emotions, of course, because it's about catching bad guys. It's not that, you know... Right. The, in terms, like we talk, kind of talked about that, Leonardo DiCaprio actually helped produce Sea of Shadows, correct? Yes, so, and also the Ivory Game. Ivory Game, right? And so yeah. it must be, having people like that who actually get get it, that must be beneficial to you. They actually have them a part of what you're kind of doing at the ground level like that. 
that's got to be pretty inspiring for you guys. Yes, it, it, it's inspiring. We are very grateful. Um, we never really collaborated with him uh, in terms of, uh, you know, project together. So we never um, receive any donation from uh, from him or from his foundation uh, because I guess he prefers to donate to other you know, global causes. Right. But of course, it, it is, you know, it, it is um, good and useful to be able to say that, you know, Leo believe in, in our documentary and in the work that we've done. Um, so, yes, of course, it's uh, we're very happy and grateful. Recently, you guys started launching kind of like your wiki, wild leaks, uh, kind of like the case reports and stuff. What's the process of kind of, do you have to declassify stuff on there or is this something where certain number of time passes, okay, let's let the general public be like, hey, you, this person submitted this information and this came from it. So can you kind of talk about how those kind of come about? Sure. So we launched uh, Project Wide Leaks um, uh, a year after we established the organization in 2014. And the idea came from the realization being in the field all the time that, that, that a lot of information about environmental crime and wildlife crime is in the hands of people who will never share it for whatever reason, because they're afraid, because they're not incentivized, because, you know, so there is an untapped, um, incredible untapped uh, amount of information in the heads of these people. So we thought, okay, let's create a, a safe space, if you want, uh, where people can send information uh, safely, securely, anonymously, if, you, if they want. So we create Wide Leaks, which is the world's first uh, whistleblower initiative dedicated to environmental crime. And uh, despite the fact that we didn't have not even the money to launch it properly from a marketing point of view, we immediately received a lot of uh, information and incredible stuff. We recently uh, published a report for the first time in six years, September 2020. You find it online. Yep. And you can have an idea of the incredible amount of information, very interesting information that we receive from all over the world, all continents. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's an incredible tool. So now we are relaunching uh, Wide Leaks and looking for partnership. We receive a lot of information. And sometimes, as you said, we have to classify them because we receive a lot of information with names and telephone numbers and all kind of private information, of course. I, re I remember a couple of years ago, we received information about a very, very prominent, well-known Kenyan politician involved in ivory trafficking, wow. uh, uh, things like that. That you and so that's why we prefer to keep it confidential within our organization. Then we have a group of people that vet information, assess the information, and then we understand with whom we can share it. So when we launched Wide Leaks, we had a few critics on, you know, on, on right, of course. Of course, Twitter and Facebook saying, oh, I don't like white leaks because they don't share information with the public. But we can't share information. The point is exactly to receive uh, information anonymously so we can protect the person who is sharing the information. And then we can follow up with some action without, of course, uh, uh, giving a heads up to the, you know, to... Right committing the crime so that's why why leaks cannot be fully public we do our we do our best to explain what we receive but actually we prefer to to process the information our analysts assess it sometimes we use 
our network of uh, global networks of, of scientists, of law enforcement, of legal uh, legal experts to understand exactly what we receive. Is it something new? Is it something old, uh, interesting? And then when it's assessed, we decide what to do. We can launch our own investigation. We can share with the media. We can share it with law enforcement. Uh, different option. But you guys do your due diligence, which is yes. what you should do, as opposed to something like the media, where let's just throw something out there, yeah. and then whatever comes from it, we'll clear no, no, no. Exactly. Right. We, are, we are the opposite. We don't dump anything unfiltered on the media. We are very serious about it. Also because, first of all, you have to protect the person who is sending the information. Right. And you and so you there are you know you have to it's a very important part of uh, of the process and a part of who we are you know we take care of that. Is there ever been a time where you've got one wild leak kind of report come in and then another one and then you're like there's some common numbers or people here like maybe this is part of the bigger network? Does yeah, that ever happen? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wild leaks is incredibly useful to to even to understand things that you're not aware of it. Right. Uh, we, I cannot give you the details, for example, but we just received a, <coughs> a leak about a very ingenious way to smuggle out of a certain country um, reptiles, fishes, fish, uh, and, and all kind of animals for collectors. And uh, nobody was aware of that. And so it's, it's, it's interesting also to, hey, wow, there is this problem over there. Let's let's look into that. But you have to have to be careful because uh, uh, we receive. Uh, sometimes they send you information, uh, you know, to to on purpose to you know to throw you off road. Right. To speak, I don't know if it's the right English uh, phrase, uh, or to you know throw mud on somebody else. So you have to be very. That's why you don't. You cannot dump stuff on the media because you really evaluate everything and and, and understand. Okay, this person is really, really trying to help us, or not. Right. Uh, so there is a process also behind that. When the show Tiger King came out a couple of months ago, it brought to light a lot of these kind of super zoos. And as a kid, I remember going to some, but not really. Oh, it's a zoo. Like I never thought. But as you get older, you're kind of like man, these animals are really mistreated. Does a show like that help you in a sense that for like wild things where people can report they see abuse or something like recently Doc Antle just got uh, arrested for uh, trafficking animals. And so, exactly, exactly. So that's a real, obviously a real problem, but does a show like that kind of help you in a good way or is it kind of like does the media, like the Hollywood aspect of it make it seem like this is just satire, this is just this is just entertainment. No, we were actually aware of it. And we. the funny thing is that a few years ago, uh, we were even asked to investigate oh, wow. on him. Uh, it didn't happen because then we couldn't find the, the money, but we were asked to. Uh, so among professionals, it was, was not a big secret. But of course, you need evidence. Right. And, uh, so I'm happy that uh, U.S. authorities took the time to do it, collect the evidence, and, and then... <clears throat> incriminate the guy. Just, you, know, just, you know, there are more, as you know, there are, there are more tigers in the state of Texas than in the wild in Asia. And, and it, it, it's crazy. We got it, to a point where you know. Now, is that a state level or a federal issue? Like, why is, how, why is that state. allowed? Yes, yeah, state in Texas and other U.S. Right. States, the laws are, are, you know, 
kind of you know they allow you to to do that to keep uh, these animals for pets uh, of course they you know inbreed them they do all kind of trafficking sometimes they do even trophy hunting because you can you know release a tiger and kill it in right. a private property you do all kind of shit with them and in the meantime in the wild in asia tigers are you know in 100 years a century went from 100,000 tigers in the wild to 3,000 so they were wiped out from because of crime because they want their parts the fangs the bones and so and so on and then in the meantime you have these you know thousands of tigers in the united states doing all kind of weird shit and and i it's you know it's weird it's weird what is your thoughts on like zoos or like sea world or like I, i'm talking like like central park zoo or san diego zoo where it's like world renowned is the, are they under uh, I'm trying to think. What was it Blackfin that came out years ago about SeaWorld and the orcas? But is there ever are they under so much scrutiny right now? Where it's like to the point where why do we even have these zoos open? Because there's people always kind of reporting us whether we're right or wrong. Like, is there kind of can a zoo be a good thing? I think yes. Okay. I mean, I, I actually uh, grew up myself. I, you know, the first uh, job I got was a uh, was a. Uh, at this kind of zoo in Italy, it's actually a, a breeding center for endangered species. So they do a very awesome. important work uh, for uh, species under threat. Uh, they almost act as banks because some of these animals are completely disappearing from the wild. So if you one day, maybe in one or two generations, will 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 they, they will be able to solve some problems, and they will and they they want to. Uh, uh, put back in nature, put back in the wild those species, you need to take them from somewhere. So, for example, zoos. So I'm not against zoos. I'm against bad zoos. Okay. And uh, I'm also personally against keeping in zoos, any zoo, certain animals. Uh, for example, marine mammals like uh, like dolphins or killer whales, I mean, are is highly, highly unethical. And, uh, and I think as a human being, we should, you know, move uh, forward, uh, uh, right. you know, those kind of, you know, keeping in prison, those kind of highly intelligent, emotional, sentient beings. The ocean, I mean, the oceans are so vast. When you think about it, it's like there's an orca or a shark. And it's like, man, that thing's used to traveling, I don't know how many miles a day doing whatever it wants. Yeah. And here you are in a glass bubble, people eating popcorn, staring. It's got, it's. It's super sad, you know. You keep them in a pool, and they and they they become clowns, basically. Right. Uh, and and also the message. Think about the message that you give to hundreds of thousands of children that see these shows every every year. The message is: it is okay to keep in a pool such an animal and treat him as a as a clown. That's the message. Right. So it's it's. Uh, you I mean it, it's a it's a lot of damage that you're doing <laughs> right the next generation so i i think it's highly highly unethical and morally so wrong to keep animals like those animals uh, in captivity with, <laughs> with ivory ivory game on netflix and sea of shadows on hulu after those kind of come out is there did you notice anything with earth league or uh, any of your groups you work with in terms of the reaction from the public? Was there an influx of, man, I got to check out Andrea, I got to check out Earth League? Or is it one of those things where the more content you put out, you just hope to slowly kind of build up a support system with 
celebrities or general public, they're just aware of what you guys are doing? Yeah, it's it's a interesting question. Um, so the reason why we agreed to do the Ivory Game and Sea of Shadows was exactly that one. So okay. because we, you know, so much of our work is confidential and behind the scenes that sometimes we, it's a challenge to, you know, to reach the public and to explain what we do. So we thought, okay, let's agree to do the, you know, the, the, the director and the production company ask us, can we follow you for one year, one year and a half? At the beginning, it was not easy to understand if it was possible because, you know, we use a lot of, uh, we do a lot of undercover operation. We use a lot of, uh, you know, investi investigators. You cannot see who they are. You cannot see their face. We, can, we also use a lot of gadgets to record conversations and videos. So we don't want it to expose our, our tradecraft, right? Our modus operandi. But then we find the right balance. We, uh, the director was great. I have to say with, with the Ivory game, the Ivory game was quite useful to put us on the map and to, and to explain people more or less what we do. Uh, with Sea of Shadows, the same, but the problem with Sea of Shadows is that the film, to be honest, was edited in a way that you don't actually understand who we are. So uh, we see this group of guys doing things behind <laughs> the scenes. You think, wow, they're cool, but who are they? And, uh, you know, our name, Earthling International, appears for a few seconds in the middle of the film, and that's it. And... Uh, the other NGO, our friends, we love them dearly, Sea Shepherd. Uh, every time they are in the film, they are, you know, you understand it's them. You know, you see the ships, you see the flag, you see, you see the logo. But we do intelligent stuff, so we cannot go around with logos and flags. So uh, it was a bit difficult to, so, the, so I don't think people will understand who we are from Sea of Shadow. Right. Um, and that lesson learned from the next documentary we are preparing right now uh it has to be clearer that part well it's kind of cool we'll start with kind of sea of shadows but uh there's a couple of scenes where i've always like the scene with the drone with yeah. you and the uh, former fbi guy yeah uh, just the reaction there but the build-up to that where you're talking to the locals there must be some sort of you don't know kind of who to trust you don't know who's watching that who's watching you guys so like those type of scenes, I assume, happen all the time. And I, I, I tend to believe that you kind of, like you said, like to film something like this, you can't see our counter uh, counterintelligence. You can't see kind of how we combat these drones or... So exactly. It's got to be... It no, was, I, hear, I, hear, I hear what you're saying about that. I mean, for, for to get to this meeting, it took two months. To get to a, the other meeting that you see in your shadows, probably an year of work to get there because, you know, you're getting to the... You try to get to the kimpings, to the real deal, so you don't find it in a week. Uh, but unfortunately, the film uh, the, in the film there was no space to explain all that, right. and uh, that's that's why we are doing we are in pre-production of a, of another documentary, the third one, and this will be entirely about us finally. So you can understand what we do before you you can understand, for example, what our crime analysts do. And uh, what are the kind of experience and, 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 and suggestion we get from former CIA or former FBI? It's a very, very unique, interesting work. Uh, you know, it's about creating the first intelligence agency for the planet. But unfortunately, in Sea of Shadows, there was no space for to show that. In Sea of Shadows, when you jump on the Sea Shepherd boat at the nighttime, when they put the drones up looking for the boats and stuff, 
and they're, they're shooting guns and stuff. Is there ever been, and I know you probably can't get specific, obviously, for obvious reasons, but when you put your life out there like that, is there, do you ever kind of, after the mission's over, you kind of just step back and be like, was it worth it? Or is this stuff that you obviously you believe in and that's worth putting your life on the line? Yeah, I have. I always have these thoughts, of course, but I always think it's worth it. You know, you have to, it's a bit like Sea Shepherd is doing. You have to push the limits. You have to put yourself on the line. There is, you know, it's very easy to, to do, to protect the environment from an office. And, right. and we also need that part, of course. We know, but, but someone has to go there and, and, and disrupt and fight and also Whenever there is a possibility with you know with the crew with the documentary, show it how it is. Right, yeah, on the front line, it's not nice. And uh, and I'm very grateful. Uh, I have an incredible team. I think almost every morning I wake up and and one of the first things I think is, Jesus, I have an awesome team. I'm so happy and proud of right. them. Take so many risks. Also, people that you will never meet or see. Because their identity is confidential. Believe me, I'm nothing without them. No, right. uh, they. I'm really happy and proud, and 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 uh, you need these kind of teams to, I think, to make a difference and to show people the truth, the full reality, right? The full. Right. So, with a team, obviously, your central team's great, but when you start working with local governments, military, police, other type of locals, I guess. Yeah. How do you kind of, you must have to do your kind of research on these people too, right? Because there is corruption. There is, that's part of the reason why this stuff is happening. So how do you kind of, is there kind of like a, like a, like a trial and error with some of these local police or like who's bribing who? Like there's, there's just so much yeah. fascinating about it. Yeah. So exactly. So an important part of our work is to, at the end of our work or when we think is the right moment, to share confidential information with law enforcement so they can act, they can right. do something about it. So we routinely share information with uh, at least three, four U.S. law enforcement agencies, and we have great relations with them, and we're fine. They're doing a great job. Uh, believe me, also outside right. the United States, they are really good. But sometimes also we have to share information with local law enforcement agencies. And and that part is tricky, of course, because um, not only you don't want to share it with a corrupt uh, government official, but also not with a lazy one. Because, right. <laughs> right? So maybe you're not corrupt, but you're lazy, so you're equally useless to me. So, so while we are doing what we're doing in the field, and we never tell anyone, when we are in a country, we never share information with the government. Hey, we are in your country, we are doing this. Our people are ghosts. But at the same time, we, through our network of collaborators, of you know, people we know, even within other law enforcement agencies, we collect information on who are the right guys or with whom we should talk once we are ready to share. And this is a very, very important uh phase as you can imagine because if you share information with the wrong person uh not only you, you jeopardize the only the, the whole uh, operation but you actually put i would put my team in danger of course right. they're supposed to go back again in the field so uh it's a very very delicate phase so far we are, you're not always right and you're not always successful never believe people right. or they tell you we are all just a sex. Right. You, know, you fail. Actually, the, <laughs> the more you fail, 
but that's it's sometimes failing. It's a, it's the proof that you are really pushing it. Uh, but usually we get at the end we get to the right people, the right law enforcement officer. Uh, of course, sometimes the problem is that in in that specific country maybe the law the law is weak. They don't have the right law, so they know now now they know because we told we tell them everything. But that they, they, they actually don't know how to do it and, and they don't want to do it because maybe they, you know, it's just about, uh, you know, a slap on the wrist. Or sometimes, and I'm very candid here, uh, in, in, let's say in, now we work in Asia, Latin America and Africa. And I think in 90% of the times, the top levels, the top traffickers, the kingpins are Asian. Okay. I, I don't want to tell you which country exactly. You may you might figure it out, but let's say Asian, right? And in some countries, uh, they are afraid to go after Asian uh, nationals because of economic interest. Because you know they there's a lot of in, in investments from specific Asian countries, so they gladly go after the local poacher. They can arrest you. Yeah, that's easy. You go to the media and it, you give the, the perception that you're doing something because you just jail or kill 10 poachers that are just poor people at the end of the day. But going after an Asian trafficker, Asian businessman with connection to the government, that's a whole different movie. Uh, yeah. That's a difficult well, part. That's kind of what I assumed in the Ivory game when they get the main antagonist at the end, they arrest him. His eyes looked completely like, like dead. dead. And yeah. but it's one of those things where you kind of feel bad because, like, yes, it's great to get him gone, but there's going to be a new one right there. They're going to find that needs the money, that's family support, and so of course, it's, just, it's very fascinating how you can keep cutting the heads off that one snake, but yeah. they're going to keep growing back. But go to the top. Absolutely, you know the postures in Sea of Shadows, for example. You see those fishermen. Yep, and and. And one of the reasons why the strategy to protect the Vaquita failed miserably, imagine they spent, U.S. government, Mexican government, and big NGOs spent more than $100 million in 10 years to protect the Vaquita. Wow. This, is an, this is an epic failure of conservation. I think elephants and rhinos combined don't have $100 million. And one of the reasons is that for 10 years, they focus only on the fishermen, on the poachers, and not on the traffickers. And if you put yourself in the shoes of a poacher, of a fisherman in this case, normally you make $600 per month fishing shrimps and other fish. And all of a sudden, I'm the trafficker. I'm offering you three, $4,000 for one fish. Right. Do you, how can we judge these people? I would right. maybe, you know, if you're poor with a family of 10 waiting for you at home, what you, you i'm not asking you to kill somebody i'm asking to fish a fish to get a and, fish and they might not know either that the, the thing, this fish is going extinct or so they don't it's, right. it's, it's different it's different there you know it's they right. it's it's they they don't have the same value they don't have the same tools we have to understand the consequences and also they need money the same thing with the ivory game and you know it, ivory in africa i'm offering you 5 or 6 years of salary to someone right. who doesn't have a job to kill an elephant. Of, of course they do it. What do you what are you and, and yet everyone hates the poachers? The poachers are the villain, but they're not. 
they're just used by traffickers. Right. And I, 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 if we don't get this part, we will also, we will always use the wrong tools and uh, to fight back to you know try to find a solution. The one of the kind of the touching parts in Ivory Game with Craig Miller is meeting with the locals and. I guess one well, of the elephants had kind of gone through their kind of like their area, destroyed their crop, whatever. Right. And he's there. Well, they want to kill the elephant, but then he's talking to them. But you kind of see their point of it, like you just said. They're the locals. They're not bad. Culturally, they they don't see the elephant as going extinct, or they don't find value in the ivory. They just want to kill the elephant for. That's like me or you having a bear come into our yard attacking our animals. Of course. And so, for me, I'm like, man, this is. For the longest time, I thought, man, these people kill the elephant. What a bunch of assholes! It, oh. it's, it, it isn't them. No, it's the people it's telling them, or yeah. I don't, I don't understand the way they live and how Craig dealt with that. Was it's very touching. It must be very kind of mentally exhausting too. Very touching, and only someone like Craig, who lives in Africa, born and raised there, uh, can understand this. Right, because th these people just want to send their kids to school every morning safely right. without by an elephant they want to preserve all they have is a small uh, you know like a field with with fruits or whatever and it means everything for them right uh, in, in the united states we kill wolves and bears and all right. kinds with no reason just for sport imagine if we had uh, i don't know wolves uh, or uh, or bears or mooses trampling our kids or eating our we would kill them all, <laughs> right right with no, without feeling guilty, of course. So now you put your, yourself in the shoes of this person in the middle of nowhere in Kenya, and and with few, you know, big family, and all they have is just a field of something, and can, that can be can be destroyed like this by a group of elephant, and that and this is how some of them uh, become poachers because they they start hating these animals. Right. Trophy hunters, obviously that's kind of a taboo. Like I know every time there's like a a famous businessman or whatever that runs a restaurant goes gets an elephant or giraffe, obviously yeah. social media is like boycott that place, whatever. I'm not gonna name names, whatever. But is there a place for I've read that some people will pay money to kill an elephant if it's if the money goes towards preservation or the conservation how does that work how does like the trophy system work if it's legal so according to my experience and my information uh it's a kind of a lie to say that the, that the money goes okay over. in some cases yes i cannot generalize there are some trophy hunting concessions very well managed and then some of the money is used to but you don't you don't have to imagine i don't know hundreds of thousands of people receiving this money of course it's a few hundreds, maybe to make, to make the, the outlook look positive, oh, exactly, okay. right. and, and maybe to protect some an area, of course. So there are, in general, trophy hunting, from I ethically and morally, of course, I don't like it. You know, we live in the, on the twenty in the twenty first century. We send people almost to Mars. Maybe it's time to stop killing animals for fun. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. It's you know, maybe we try to find. You know, we really should. I don't think killing animals for fun is moving human race forward. Right. I, like I how hard is it to hunt a giraffe? No, exactly. And very often, you know, they take you right in front of the giraffe and some other and, and many times they don't even they're not even able to shoot it. So someone else has to shoot it for you. It's a weird, weird uh 
hobby for very rich people. Okay, but at the same time, I don't think trophy hunting is the problem uh, because we're not talking about many, many animals. Uh, right. they, they commit crimes, yes, and we actually, we launched a whole operation in Tanzania a few years ago on illegalities in trophy hunting concession and we managed to kick out a big uh, trophy hunting company uh, because he was doing all kind of shit, you know, using automatic rifles, shooting animals at water holes, right, uh, or from the cars. It's illegal, so they do this stuff. This is illegal, but nothing compared to industrial scale poaching, which which is, in the case of the elephants, thirty, forty thousand oh. elephants. So we're talking about hundreds of tons of ivory. So that's a whole different. A whole different thing. How many operations are kind of going off at once? Like Operation Mozart, or like you got the rhino thing going, you got chimpanzee, you got. Yeah. Uh, it's like, how, like, is this for you, kind of like overseeing all this, are you kind of, how do you kind of like break away? Because you really don't have a day off, obviously, but how do you kind of deal with everything coming in at once? Like, how do you. It's very challenging. In fact, I, 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 I kill a marriage with, with my work. And uh, because you, uh, I mean, I understand her. I mean, right. um, yeah, you never stop. Uh, also, because you have people working for you, risking their life around the world. You cannot simply say, I'm sorry, it's weekend. I'm sorry, I'm on the beach. That's not such a thing. Right. Um, we have a lot of operations going on all the time. It depends a lot on funding. So uh, sometimes we are just forced to put an operation on hold if we finish the money, which is a pity because when you do intelligence like we do, Intelligence supposed to be 24-7 forever. Yep. Everything. Imagine to fight terrorists from March to October and the rest of the year, nothing. Right. And so that's the difficult part for us. And also the difficult thing for the donors to understand that we need to be able to work 24-7 to do good intelligence. Um, usually we have maybe two, three big operations going on every year. Um, at the moment, I think uh, at the moment we are very, very active in Latin America. We work in seven countries. Uh, we start working on Jaguar parts trafficking, Jaguar poaching and Jaguar tra uh, parts trafficking. And then we uh, from there we went into uh, shark fins trafficking and other kind of wildlife trafficking. Um, Latin America is, you know, it's uh, for many, many years, most of the money for conservation went to Africa and Asia and not really to Latin America, but it's a I mean, it's a it's a paradise in terms of biodiversity, and 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 in some countries, literally in the hands of transnational organized crime. So it's very important for us to work there. Um, and of course, we keep we we try never stop. Although we don't have always the money, the the work on rhino horn track right. from Africa to Asia, which is also very important to us. Like our, our mutual favorite now, Tree of the Peak, who's out there rescuing chimpanzees, missions like that that might not be tied to you. Are you aware of this different these different groups all kind of are they kind of like, hey guys, we're working on this animal. We might we have some extra money, we might need some of your guys to help. Are you able to kind of coordinate like that? Yes. What is happening now that is more and more other conservation organizations that may be working on a very, you know, on a on very big project, conservation project, they need someone to deal only with the crime part or with the intelligence part. And we can do that and provide them information. Actually, our work with Jaguar in Latin America is a great example is 
the the is is in it's an alliance with IFO and IUCN and Netherlands, and they do a lot of invest. They do a lot of uh, scientific work and conservation, working with local communities, working with governments. But they need uh, a sort of intelligence agency collecting other kind of information, and we do that. We do that for them. In case of the rescue of chimps across Africa, is it something very very dear to my heart personally? Uh, it's also about crime because it's a crime to traffic in uh, in chimps. Every time you, every time you get a baby chimp from the wild, you, in, on average, you kill uh, five, seven other chimps, including his or her family, and then they ended up in you know wealthy homes in, in the Emirates or Asia. Uh, so we, in the past, we were we funded a few of these operations. We were not involved directly, but we funded, we raised the money and then we funded. <clears throat> and it's about locating, identifying these chimps, usually in the middle of nowhere, in very difficult countries like Central African Republic of DRC. Go there, convince the guy to give, never buy the chimp. So convince the guy, good or bad manners, to give you the chimp and then relocate the chimp to a, in a sanctuary. Uh, it's a very important job, and now Trian is doing this, and we are helping. You know, we we, we would love to launch uh, uh, a, a separate fund, actually, with her, dedicated to that. So to be able to every year to have enough money to rescue at least uh, a dozen of those chimps uh, from across Africa. You mentioned kind of earlier uh, when. The you come across like a guy that say he's got the Jaguar hearts or Paul, he's doing some Jaguar, but then you notice he might also be tied into human trafficking or cocaine or something else. At that point, I assume you have a duty to reach out to your counterparts of other government agencies, whatever the three other three letter words ones are and be like, Hey, this is what we got going on. Can we kind of pool our resources together to kind of like, what do you have on this guy with human trafficking that might help us per se? Absolutely. It's a, it's a very important part of our work. It's called convergence. So yes. the technical term is convergence of different crimes, uh, basically into the hands of the same persons, the same groups. Uh, at, at the level where we work, it's, it's quite common uh, to, uh, to have people dealing with wildlife trafficking, human smuggling, money laundering, and so on. Sometimes they launder money for very dangerous organized groups. Uh, so that's why not only our teams on the ground, the undercover investigators, the undercover operatives are instructed always to collect information on other crimes as well. They're very good in doing that. Right. But then we provide, we prepare a separate set, a separate set of confidential intelligence brief only on those crimes, not wildlife crime. And we share them with U.S. law enforcement that are really not into environmental crime, but these are in other crimes. Uh, and we now, um, we have been doing this for a couple of years and it's going very well. We are providing with a lot of information about all those crimes right. and they do the rest of, uh, of the work. We never, we know, we are just providers of information. We are, we do not part, we do not take part in any operation by law enforcement because would that be illegal and not our work but we give them all the information needed to start their own work and uh and you you would be surprised at what the kind of stuff these people are are doing on top of wildlife crime right it's, at that point they commit all the crimes if you're gonna do what even pick one of these things yeah you might as well do everything else because 
but it makes sense right. when you are at that level so you are you're already corrupting government officials you know exactly how to smuggle stuff from an airport or a seaport you do you use that for everything not just for wildlife crime of course right. or when you process millions of dollars from one thing you can help other groups to launder the money so you it's natural for these people to have their hands in many different things and this is the level of environmental crime that almost that is very difficult to see and understand and uh, this is the holy grail so to speak of uh, of environmental crime so in order to really imagine to fight i come from i can i can i came from italy so imagine to fight the mafia in italy without being aware of the of the cupola of the top right. level of the mafia you will miss most of it so you will do your thing thinking wow i'm doing thing i'm doing stuff but you're actually no you're doing anything and with environmental crime is the same why you are running after poachers and small time traffickers without being aware of what is happening at the top you're achieving absolutely nothing you know it's uh imagine that you know busting people selling drugs in the park without doing anything to go after you know big bosses in mexico or colombia that would be a gigantic waste of money and time and this is exactly what is happening in environmental crime have you ever come across a poacher that was obviously a bad guy but in talking with them working with it can they ever be kind of like i don't want to say like a rat or like an informant per se but could they be like, hey, like I, I'll go to my, I'll tell you who my boss is. I could probably get the next guy up. Does that ever? You must have to build those type of trust thing too, right? Yes. Right. And it's also very dangerous because you have to be. We at least I'm always very aware of the consequences on of my work on these people. Right. Uh, so if they if they are caught giving information to us, in most countries they would be killed. Right. Uh, and I don't want that, even if there are poachers. It's, that's not my job. So we are very careful, and we prefer actually instead to infiltrate ourselves in the trafficking networks and extract and harvest information in other ways directly from the from the bosses, from the rather than trying to to rec, you know to recruit a poacher. And in right. any case, the poacher is never really fully aware of the of the levels above him. So. But then uh, I know that other other do it, but is I find I find it uh, ethically wrong. Uh, right. No, that's probably the right way because now you're putting yourself out there to risk the harm. But like yeah. you said before, these poachers they don't know what's going on. So why yeah. they they're part of the crime, but they aren't the crime. It's, I don't exactly. Know right. So exactly, and and they do it because the trafficker. Right. Is asking them to do it. It's not the other way around. It's not it, the problem. Doesn't begin with the poachers right it trickles down you exactly gotta, you gotta shut that water off up exactly top. so what the poachers do is just a reaction to to someone else offering a lot of money is there a trend right now with a different animal that usually i mean you keep mentioning jaguar but is there another animal where like say a couple of years ago you're like well why this is this has been poached then but now you're kind of like wow this is this is interesting why this animal do they just kind of if they see the rhino or elephant or like something like that, it's predominantly people know kind of being more secure now. Do they just find another animal where they're kind of 
hey, we'll just go after this one now. Yeah, well, in Sea of Shadows is a great example of this fish called Totoaba. Right. Uh, mostly for the Chinese market. They were actually, the reason why they are in Mexico fishing Totoaba is, is because they fish to extinction a similar fish in China. Oh, okay. They were using that before to extract the swim bladder and then for the traditional Chinese medicine. Then they, the fish, they got extinct. And I, I, I guess in a, maybe by chance, uh, like it, someone in Mexico's, hey, that's the same, more or less the same fish, it's big fish, big swim bladder. Let's get into that. And, and, and I have to say, it's uh, the, for when you talk about traditional Chinese medicine and in general uh, illegal markets in Asia for wildlife product, the moment they put their attention on someone, something alive, it, beca it becomes a problem overnight. Right. Because the market is so big and there's so much money, they, they start the day after to hunt it down and, and over, in a brief period of time, this species, this animal is in trouble. Uh, that's a problem. You mentioned, I think it's called the pagodia or like that thing, it's like an armadillo type thing. Pangolin. Pangolin. What is the significance of that? Because I've seen a lot of groups now where I, they've been around, but they kind of protect this. I had no idea that that animal is being harvested. Yes. Pangolin, uh, pangolin is the most trafficked actually mammal in the world. Really? Uh, I mean, the number is the numbers are staggering. We we don't really know the extent because it's it's just a lot, and there right. is no real study on the status in in the wild. They started in Asia with the pangolin, the Asian pangolin. Then it got uh, more and more difficult to get them, so they went went to Africa. Now they're of course uh, poaching and trafficking also the the African species of the pangolin. Again, for the, both for uh, the meat is a delicatessen and the, and the scales, are, uh, the whole animal actually is used for traditional Chinese medicine once again. So it's a mix of uh, status symbol for wealthy people because it's very expensive to have a soup pangolin. Right. With stew and also traditional Chinese medicine is involved. So, and, uh, and again, like I said before, it became, a problem overnight for all the pangolins on earth right and, uh, asian and african pangolins and how Maybe, do you right how do you, like, how do you, how do you so, so again it, it's not really useful to to run after every single poacher in africa because africa is big there are many many poachers around like all all villages around africa they can collect po uh, pangolins for but then it's actually, it's like uh, you have to imagine an, an hourglass, right? It's called hourglass? Yes. So the, the first part, the white part, is the poaching. Very large, very wide. Then it gets narrow at the trafficking and smuggling level. There are not so many big traffickers around. And then it gets big again at the consumer level. Many What's people right. find the stuff all over China. So once again, it's very difficult to stop it. So if I ask you where it makes sense to act, to disrupt is of course in the middle right where it's narrow where there are not so many players not so many exit points from africa you know you know there are maybe a dozens of seaports and airports not so many but there are thousands and thousands of places where they push pangolin so this is what i'm this is what i'm advocating a, you know a better strategy 
and the use of professional intelligence to attack those narrow plays with these weak points where it makes sense to right to how often is kind of like the endangered species list kind of changing is there ever what was the last animal that was on that list that got taken off or has that not happened you mean extinct or yeah, the extinct list like the endangered it takes a long time uh, okay. is the iucn uh, list and uh it takes a long time because even when you don't find them anymore, you have to be 100% sure. Right. So it takes years and years and years. For example, in the case of the Vaquita in Sea of Shadows, uh, now we think there are maybe 10, 10 Vaquitas left in the whole Sea of Cortez, maybe that, less. When, you, when, you hear, when, you, when I hear that number, and obviously I, I see the documentary, but I'm just like, as big as that, is the ocean the Sea of Cortez is to try and protect when you have a, a dozen or whatever of those animals? How do you like? I don't, it doesn't even make it doesn't. I can't even comprehend how you can even. It's I, yeah. for me. I'm like it's not a matter of if; it's when they go extinct, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. There were more than 400 individuals a few years ago, and now there are less than 10. We don't know how many females. We we every year we spot calves, you know, little ones. Yep. So they are trying their best to survive, but they keep getting entangled in those uh, illegal nets. And uh, and no matter how many nets you retrieve and destroy, they put more during the night. So every year is worse, and uh, and it's heartbreaking. I as I say in the film, I had a dream. And I dreamt uh, the very last vaquita because one day there will be the last vaquita, right? The last one, and and he will probably or she will probably calling out asking for, where are they? Because it's families; they know each other, and nobody will answer. It will be the last. Yeah, I was, I'm kind of just always like, it, man, that's it's really haunting when you think about that. And Imagine it's you or I alone waking up. Yeah, in the hospital, that no one's there. You're screaming no, out. Swimming, swimming in the in the, in a sea that was your house for a highly social animal, and you will call it out, and nobody will answer. That would be the last vaquita on earth. Symbolically, has, I mean, it's a epic failure of human race, and and again, it's not happening in the middle of the jungle of Africa. It's, it's happening six hours drive from Los Angeles, which is, you know, crazy. Right. And so, yeah, that movie, when you kind of, the, the team tried to rescue the one and then obviously um, perished. Is there, and you can't, like you said before, some zoos or aquariums that if you could kind of get them in a habitat to help reproduce and actually save the, not put them out there in a smoking pony shell, jumping for fish for people, but yes. actually preserve them. Is there still a chance that that could still happen if you grab one or two of them and it's I, just, it's, I don't know. It's, it's I, terribly sad. It's, it's, uh, I, was, uh, I was a supporter of the... I know that other people were not, but I was a supporter of the rescue mission right. attempt because it was not a mission to remove them forever from the wild. Right. It was temporarily put them in a safe space. Meanwhile, we are trying to solve this crime problem in the sea. Right. Unfortunately, they found out that they cannot stand captivity, not even for a few hours. Um, and that was tragic because the scientists put their, you know, dedicate their lives and to, to do that. So I felt very sorry for them as well. Yeah. Um, 
I was there when it happened. I, I was on the beach, but I could feel the commotion and and the sadness of of, of understanding. Oh shit, we cannot rescue them. Right. So now they are on their own. And now it makes me kind of wonder if this is just kind of like uh, whether people believe in God or not, but kind of like a lesson where, hey, this animal's out here and this it dwindles. You either got to learn your lesson to protect these other animals or you guys, just, it's, if it's not this fish, it's going to be the shark next. It's going to be the oh, chimpanzee yeah. next. It's just weird how the human, there's there's a lot of selfishness in the world we're in. And it's very, yeah. it's just heartbreaking that you, an animal that, can't really defend itself is being hard. It's one thing if it's being killed by other sharks or like, cool. Okay. That's that's the circle of life. Of course. But when you have greedy assholes, yeah, it's just it's so heartbreaking. I I don't know how you are able to stay so positive in this type of environment. You should see you should see me before coffee in the morning. That I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> now if they can only poach squirrels here up in New England. <laughs> um, so before I let you go, kind of how. If I want to say I'm someone that's leaving the government or I want to change my career path, how does someone kind of reach out to you guys? How do you guys kind of uh, recruit? And, 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 like, what's the process for kind of joining your team? So, yeah, it depends where, because, you know, we have a marketing team. We have a, 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 okay. a, team, a team made of uh, crime analysts, for example. So really smart uh, smart uh, young people, you know, working with different softwares. We are actually in the process of uh, creating uh, a geospatial intelligence unit inside our organization. So people using geospatial data to um, enhance the, the kind of confidential brief that we put out and we share with law enforcement. And then, of course, we have the people in the field. And that is difficult. Uh, we use, uh, broadly speaking, two kind of people, two kind of uh, professionals. Uh, one team is made up only of Asian um, operatives, undercovers, investigators, yep. uh, and they can do a certain kind of work on certain kind of people. And then, of course, uh, my right arm, Mark, is a former FBI and CIA. We have two other guys from the agency, and they help me to, you know, to recruit, to vet people, to understand. We also have people serving as, a, in, you know, in the advisory board, you know, 30 years in, in the CIA, you can imagine the wealth of information and, oh, and knowledge and, and, you know, they, they can help us a lot. Uh, so there are different ways in, in, in joining our team. Um, we cannot always pay everyone because we are uh, always looking for money. But, uh, but one day maybe we'll be able really to, uh, no, I will be able to, you know, to, to, um, now is an obsession to create the first intelligence agency for Earth. I think we really need it. Well, it's a, it's a mission and idea and concept that well, everyone should be behind, obviously. But for you guys and girls to actually go out there and do it, like I, 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 like you, I don't think it's a – it's yeah, everyone wants to make money and you need to pay bills. I, I totally get that. But what a lot, I think what a lot of you guys are doing is you're so selfless in what you're doing that – the money will come if it comes, but I, these animals are still suffering, and we still yeah. have to do our job. And those animals deserve people like us to kind of help them. Yes, and we and, and basically my my bottom line, what I'm saying is that with what with our with the work we're doing and with this agency that we're trying to build, we're just we're actually saying, guys, we need to raise the bar of you know of the level of, of the, the way we work and the way we fight back. There are very bad guys out there. 
very sophisticated criminal networks. If you don't play at the same level, they will always, always be ahead of us. And that will be the end of this planet. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Andrea, for uh, the time today. And um, I wish you much success with your team. You. And uh, yeah. keep up the great work. Someone's got to do it. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.